Yippee-ki-yay, movie fans. We're back on the film frontier with Paint Your Wagon this week. I'm Felicity. And I'm Clarence. This week we're covering the uh, 1969 film based on the Lerner and Lowell musical. Uh, it was a Broadway musical from 1951 uh, set in the California Gold Rush. Prospector Ben Rumson strikes gold with his partner, who he calls Pardner. This leads to the founding overnight of a mining camp called No Name City. The city is devoid of women, and uh, when a polygamous Mormon arrives in town, he agrees to sell his second wife, Elizabeth, to the highest bidder. Rumson wins the auction and marries Elizabeth. She falls in love with him, but as time passes, she also falls in love with Pardner. And to settle this issue, she proposes the idea of a dual marriage, uh, which they eventually agree to. It works for a while until they rescue a uh, religious family and have to bring them into their home to nurse them back to health which causes Elizabeth to succumb to social pressures and seek a more conventional relationship. And I was excited to cover this movie on the podcast because I'm kind of a fan of it. I think it has its problems and Mm -hmm. could be perhaps changed for the better, but it's also, I think, considered a notorious flop. I think a lot of people think it helped contribute to the death of the musical. Mm -hmm. It affected Clint Eastwood in his career. And yet it still has this, uh, I think, cult status among musical fans. And I know, like, my mom is a huge fan of it. So uh, I wanted to kind of talk about it and maybe think about how it's maybe been misunderstood or why some people like it and some people don't. Right. I do love the Roger Ebert review from the time. He said, the fact is, Paint Your Wagon doesn't inspire a review. It doesn't even inspire a put down. It just lies there in my mind. A big, heavy lump. So (laughs) keep that in mind. That's rough. As we talk about it. Um, It can only go up from here. Yeah, like this film for me, it's... You have Clint Eastwood, who I love. uh, Lee Marvin, who I also love. um, Two of Hollywood's greatest tough guy actors. You have them finally together in a Western, and it's a musical. The Simpsons did a bit on this famously that I think summarizes my feelings Mm -hmm. uh, toward this. Clint Eastwood, Lee Marvin, shoot him up, Western. So prepare yourself for the bloody mayhem and unholy carnage of Joshua Logan's Paint Your Wagon. With blood, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty sorry-looking wagon you got there, mister. I reckon it could use a coat of paint. Well, what are we waiting for? Gonna paint our wagon, gonna paint it good. We ain't bragging, we're gonna coat that wood. We're gonna paint that wagon, we're gonna paint it good. They're singing, Marge. Why aren't they killing each other? Yeah, their guns are right there. Wait, wait, wait. Here comes Lee Marvin. Thank God. He's always drunk and violent. Uh, What the hell is going on in my town? We're just painting this wagon. You got a problem with that? As a matter of fact, I do. You missed a spot. Well... Grab a brush and join in. Gonna paint your wagon, gonna paint it fine. Gonna use oil-based paint, cause the wood is pine. 
that Lee Marvin could do such marvelous splits. He's dreamy. Why did they have to screw up a perfectly serviceable wagon story with all that fruity singing? So I guess let's just talk about it from the beginning. I think the opening song really gets us into it. But I do think that it very much plants it as a music, more musical than a Western, given that it's not really like a Frankie Lane theme song from, from one of your more traditional Westerns. Right. It's not like a gunfight at OK Corral or High Noon or something like that. One of those famous theme songs that opened so many Westerns during the era. It's for sure a show tune and not like yeah. your Blazing Saddles parody. <laughs> right. And then short, shortly after the opening song, the, the um, inciting incident yes. is uh, a wagon sort of falling apart, rolling down the hill. Right. And I just wanted to go ahead and say that that shot bothered me where you have like a POV view from the wagon of this really bumpy hill. As it's barreling down the hill yeah, to crash. Yeah. yeah. What did you think? It didn't really bother me. I, it, it was it, it seemed fine to me, but you didn't care for it? No. <laughs> and there's another shot similar Later in the film, I think it's when Lee Marvin's character is um, going to get the French prostitutes yes, in the other town. Kidnaps the French prostitutes. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> you have another shot, like kind of from the the horse's perspective, and mm, I don't think fan. the technology was there at the time for a um, more stable view. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you could say it was more realistic that it was so bumpy. But... <laughs> well, it seems motivated on the uh, wagon barreling down the hill since it's out of control. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. There was a, there was actually another POV shot. When uh, Lee and Clint have a little brief fight and uh, there's a punch. Oh, yeah. I forgot about <laughs> that Did that bother one. you at all? Nah. 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 <laughs> Although I think I did point it out. You did. Yeah, you mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. It was, it's the kind of thing that Clint would do later in uh, the monkey movies. Oh. Uh, Every Which Way But Loose. Every which way but loose you turn me. Every which way but loose. There are several fight scenes that are shot like POV like Maybe that. he was inspired Maybe from this so. One. He remembered uh, Josh Logan's technique. <laughs> Shortly after the, these POV shots from the wagon falling apart, Lee meets Clint because he was in the wagon. He's fallen out. His brothers have died in mm -hmm. the crash. And I think it's here you get a good first look at these complicated Western characters that we're being presented here, that they're not all good and not all bad. Right. Lee Marvin is has decided to kind of do the right thing and bury the brothers and give them a proper sort of funeral. But in doing so, he 
spots some gold in the ground and drops everything right. <laughs> to stake his and uh, his partner's partner uh, claim. Right, right. And here. knocks all the other men who are helping dig the, the grave mm-hmm. away so he can stake the claim before anyone else. And I think this sort of viewpoint is really solidified uh, a little bit later when uh, Lee is trying to convince Clint that he's not going to wrong him in this partnership. Right. He has this uh, speech where he says, I ain't yet sunk to horse stealing. Oh, I've salted claims, yeah. And I've sold whiskey to engines. And once a man in Walla Walla come at me with a gun and I killed him. I can't think of one commandment I ain't shattered regular. I never did fancy my mother and father, let alone respect him or honor him. And I have coveted my neighbor's wife whenever I had a neighbor and he had a wife. Mm-mm. And I gamble and I cheat at cards, but there's one thing I do not do. I ain't never gold a partner. The one sacred thing, even to a low scuff like me, is a man's partner. Yeah. He may be a terrible low-down skunk, but he has he has a code of ethics that he lives by, and, mm-hmm. and doing wrong by your partner is not something he will do. Yeah. yeah. Now, a partnership in the gold country was the most precious thing in a man's life because it was that was his whole family. That was his whole connection with reality and with humanity. And it was his mother, his father, his, his, uh, his buddy, his everything. And that's sort of like the the law, the miners' law here that rules over everything, because they're of course not governed by your right, right, any other kind You're of in, law. Yeah. <laughs> and he and he even tells Clint when they're dividing up the gold, like he'll switch pouches with him anytime he says, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, he'll never cheat him in that regard. Yeah. And he expects Clint to uh, look out for him in other ways, like when he falls down drunk in the mud, he needs to bring him home, and when he owes money, ga- when he owes gambling mm-hmm. debts, he expects Clint to to cover him, and he'll do the same for yeah. him. And it sort of establishes this idea of, of this Wild West frontier where they make up what's going on here. Right. And that sets us up for the menage a trois relationship yes. where, according to maybe the church-going crowd, that's completely against the law. And maybe, according to your traditional government, you're not allowed to have more than one wife. Right. But around around these parts, <laughs> anything goes. Anything goes. Yeah. You know, out here we make up our own rules as we go along. A man rides in the town with two wives wants to sell one at auction. Nobody thinks twice about it. And if a town needs female companionship, hijacking them seems the natural thing to do. And if two partners want to share the same wife, why not? This ain't Michigan. It's gold country. Why, hell, it's the golden country, untouched and uncontaminated by human hands. It's where people can someday look civilization straight in the eye and spit. And you don't have to please anybody. And you don't have to love thy neighbor. You leave the bastard alone. It's wild, human, and free. And all over this nation, they preach against it every Sunday. But I don't think God's listening. You know why? Because he's here in glorious California. In all that, you sort of get a look at uh, male friendships and mm-hmm. male relationships and the emotions and even sexual urges that go with that. Yeah. And this is like uh, no different than other Westerns in that you have the the bonding of the two male characters mm-hmm. and their, res- you know, growing respect for each other and, and, and coming to like each other and looking out for each other. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that this movie really gets to the heart of what it feels like to be a cowboy like you have the lee marvin character talking about his his melancholy yes he says i get melancholy sometimes it's a condition common to mountain men yeah and and sometimes i feel like you don't really think about that side of things right they do yeah the loneliness of being out Mm -hmm. on your own in the middle of nowhere with you know no one to talk to or you know 
no female companionship yes. as which is, becomes a problem later on and even in the film i mean it's not all just about sex it's like the the first time they see a woman this giant grizzly guy he just wants to hold her baby right like he hasn't <laughs> seen a baby in so long yeah the mormon his one of his wives has a, a, an infant and they all just gather around and they marvel at the baby like mm-hmm. they're just yeah it's just a bit of society and humanity that they've been absent you know mm-hmm. from for so long it, and it is also a pretty ribald look at the idea of having multiple partners i mean you think about when this movie came out, it is kind of during the free love movement, but that is right. on the more liberal side of the spectrum, and I wonder how that meshed with perhaps more conservative fans of the Western. Yes, exactly, and it feels like they're chasing the youth culture, mm-hmm. and this was the time when uh, movies like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider were coming out, and the youth movement in Hollywood was happening. Uh, this movie still feels like the studio's not sure what to make for that new audience, like Mm. trying to get there, but not really. And I think that's what the menage a trois kind of is about. And everyone's very accepting of it in the community. Mm -hmm. And and it's not, at first they're horrified by the idea, but then they consider it, well, that's what she did. Yeah. You know, so why not? Yeah. But I think even presenting, I mean, I, I see that perspective, but I think even presenting the idea of, a Mormon family with multiple wives is a little bit out there. And yeah. For viewers, they might not be accepting of that. And then put it in front of them that what, a, what about a wife having two men? Right. Yes. Which is, I think is a pretty uh, advanced idea for the yeah. time. Because people seem to tend to accept more, oh, sure, a husband with multiple wives. But it's usually, you don't see it the other way around, mm-hmm. which I think is, is interesting. I mean, I think it is kind of going along with a quote from Lee Marvin's character, it is very California and not like back in Michigan. Yes, yeah, exactly. Which is, yeah, evident of the time. Yes. California at the time is, you know, the wild and the weird and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So, and I, I'm not sure about the history of what I'm about to say. Okay. But is it outrageous for the time to show a character breastfeeding? Because you have a moment of Elizabeth being shown breastfeeding in the bar and it's kind of when all the other men are out, but then Lee Marvin's character sees her and is taken aback. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not sure. I I would agree with you that I think it is. It seems pretty radical for the time. Even now, I feel like you don't you see You won't see it. that. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't even say the word pregnant in movies, yeah. you know, maybe five years before this. So it seems pretty pretty advanced in, in that. And it's shown in a very natural way. Like, she just, yeah. she's, baby has to eat. Right. No, no it's not a big deal made it's out of it or anything. It's not sexualized in no, any way. No. It's, yeah. Lee Marvin wakes up to just see it happening and it freaks him out. He wakes up from a drunken in a drunken stupor and uh, yeah. doesn't know what to make of it. Speaking of which, I, I wanted to talk about Lee's character, about Ben Rum- Rumson. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like, in a way, the actor Lee Marvin is kind of given in short shrift because he basically becomes just the comic relief to me. Yeah. His song Wandering Star, which we'll talk about later, he does get a big emotional solo moment Mm -hmm. but the rest of it i feel like he's just the laughing stock yeah and he's great at it right he's a terrific comedian but he's like at at 10 on the comedy level the whole time yeah i think uh clint referred to this movie as cat blue 2 which is also maybe a bit of overacting yeah yeah um in a similar way i mean he's he's always won the oscar for it yes (laughs) 
But he's always enjoyable in this movie. Yeah, oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. I just maybe would have preferred more of a balance between the drama and comedy for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Because giving him so much comedy to me makes him a little bit less of a character I take seriously than right. Clint's character, than partner. And, and he mentions his, his spells of melancholy yes. several times throughout the film, but really we just see it once, mm-hmm. you know. It would have been nice to sort of get an earlier uh, glimpse of it or something, yeah. you know. Along those lines are a couple of side characters that... I thought were also a bit much. Uh-huh. Um, you have the character played by Ray Walston, Mad Jack. Yeah. Whom I'm going to guess is Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to tell whether he's Scottish or Irish. Or Pakistani. Yeah, the, the uh, accent's kind of all over the place. Yeah. And then similarly, I think the, the character named Horace, who's the, the dandy, yeah. is a bit of a cartoonish. Very um, much so, yeah. His character is from Massachusetts, and he's very prim and proper. and Which, I mean, all of these characters, the Scotsman, the, the Easterner, are all realistic western characters that you right. love to see paint this world but just nah. yeah <laughs> and like the makeup on ray walston it's it's uh mm. yeah <laughs> i think all these western characters though combined with the grand vistas not to mention the almost three hour runtime. yeah yeah to me i'd argue it's an epic what do you think yeah i think so it, yeah. an unnecessary epic i'd say <laughs> But I mean, you've got like comedy, drama, romance. Yes, yeah. Um, while while maintaining a, a strong, smaller main story, and never does it feel like a story you would see confined to the stage. How you would do this on the stage is as beyond me. Yeah. Because I, I guess you're right. It is an epic. I mean, there's these grand locations. There's the whole stagecoach sequence, yeah. which is big. The the building of the town and the, the climax of the movie. Yeah, is, the big is, final you, set you piece. Could, yeah. I guess you could do that on stage in a very uh, stylized, you know, fake way kind of thing. But it could use some editing. Yes, yeah. It could be taken down a little yeah. bit. At two, at two hours, it might have been really good. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've talked about the guys a lot. Let's talk about the Gene Seberg character Elizabeth sure. a little bit. I, th- I think another more liberal appealing angle to her character is that she is literally sold claimed and filed right to this man married off to a man she did not choose but in the course of her story she's ultimately liberated Mm -hmm. in that she decides of her own will she has to convince the guys that she should have both of them right and she also has sort of a code of ethics like lee marvin does like she agrees to be a wife to him as long as he fulfills his duty as a husband and doesn't just treat her as a piece of meat Mm -hmm. And she has certain demands, and he he agrees to them. All right, boys. The lady wants a cabin to live in. A proper cabin made out of wood that'll hold up in the winter. So just don't sit there gaping. Get to work. She's clear from the beginning what yes. she wants. She wants this cabin built yes. for her. And in, in turn, she'll cook for them. She'll provide for them. Right. I mean, I think she does play the marriage and her sale to her advantage. I mean, not that she's conning these men or anything but she's not just a victim being tossed around from husband to husband right right right. given that though what did you think of her resolution it's not quite she doesn't have the the say in the resolution yeah well we should we should say what happens near the end it appears as though she's staying behind at the cabin after the town has been destroyed and both clint and lee are taking off to the next town to do whatever but clint sees that well clint doesn't know that lee is leaving right 
And so he agrees to leave so that she and Lee Marvin can be together. Mm-hmm. And he'll go on and, and do his thing. While Lee thinks that they'll be par- continue to be partners together. Yeah. And then once Clint sees that Lee is leaving as well, he decides to stay with Elizabeth. He just sort of enters the cabin and she he tells her he's not going and she walks up and takes his arm or holds his yeah. hand or something. And, and that's sort of the end. It's not so much that she chose who she wanted to be with. And maybe you're supposed to think that it's a happy ending and that Clint is the right one for mm-hmm. her because he's the more responsible, introspective one and not the, the boozing, brawling mm-hmm. drunkard that Lee Marvin is. What did you think? What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I didn't think it was quite the right ending for me. I, I'm i still not quite sure what I want it to be. Yeah. It, it feels like a no-win situ- situation every every which way but loose. Every which way but loose. Because she's not driving her story at that point. Yeah. It's just sort of they decide who she ends up with. And Whereas she seems beforehand, o- she had been, she's been in yes, so much control. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she seems okay with it, but that's just, you know, to make the movie have a happy ending Mm -hmm. it almost seems like both of them should have uh, lee and clint should have left and And it's just a sort of a sad ending but at least she gets to keep the cabin i mean i don't think i'd want to see her go with no no even if it was her choice (laughs) right she worked hard for that cabin. yes she did (laughs) and she wasn't leaving yeah from the town perspective moving on from the elizabeth character i think it quickly shows the the tale of american enterprise just rising so quickly out of nothing, all because of greed. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I love seeing that, especially in a Western. Yeah. I mean, that's almost like the classic Gold Rush story. My idea from the very beginning was to capture this quality that the Gold Country had of being a universal hope because people came from all over the world because there was still gold up in the trail. And you could say that that with greed being their overwhelming drive, that they put aside their moral beliefs and they they're because the, the community is fine with the, yeah. with Elizabeth having two husbands. Mm-hmm. They aren't bothered by it at all. They really the town doesn't come to ruin until multiple pastors yes, come into the town. pastor and then the religious family that yeah. gets lost on the in the mountain pass that mm-hmm. they rescue. Yeah, Mr. Fanny, your son is one of the most natural born gold miners that I ever met. Yes, I brought him up not to be afraid to try anything. Well, that boy tries everything. Did you know that the Fentys had a, an apple farm back in Pennsylvania? Applejack, huh? No, sir. We did not make Applejack. Then what'd you grow the apples for? Mr. Rumson, you think everything that comes out of the earth should be used to make liquor? Whenever possible, yes. You should read the Bible, Mr. Rumson. I have read the Bible, Mrs. Fenny. Didn't that discourage you about drinking? No, but it sure killed my appetite for reading. We've been telling the Fenties what good lands all around this valley. Yes, we were thinking of settling down here. Oh, great! Yeah, that news is so goddamn great. I need a drink. Don't listen to him. He's always joking. Elizabeth, the whiskey's gone. I know. I poured it all out. You what? Out of courtesy to our guests, Ben, if you want a drink, get your carcass out of this house. Wait a minute, Elizabeth, you can't order a man out of his own house. His house? That's right, it's his house. Mrs. Rumson is married to him? Well, she's married to the both of us. At the same time? Well, we're partners. I have never heard oh, of... Oh, shut up and sit down. Wait a minute, Ben, don't go ordering the guests around. Why not? It's his fault in the first place. If he hadn't brought his goddamn respectability in this house, we'd still be a happily married triple. You mean to tell me there's not one drink of whiskey in this whole house? Here, Mr. Rumson, take mine. Thank you, boy. You saved my life. 
Martin, how did that bottle get into your pocket? Martin. How long have you been drinking hard liquor? Well, since this afternoon. I know you don't approve, Pa, but believe me, until you've had a good cigar and a shot of whiskey, you're missing the second and third best things in life. Martin. When decent society comes to town, that it destroys what they have there. You want to see sin of the wickedest kind? Here it is. You want to see virtue left behind? Here it is. Sodom was vice and vice versa. You want to see where the vice is worse? Here it is. I mean, here it is. You want to live life in the rottenest way? Here it is. Women and whiskey night and day. Here it is. You want to embrace the golden calf, ankle and thigh and upper half. Here it is. I mean, here it is. No name city, no name city, the Lord don't like it here. No name city, no name city, your reckoning day is near. No name city, no name city, here's what he's gonna do. Gobble up this town and swallow it down and goodbye to you. Will you go to heaven, will you go to hell? Either repent or fare thee well. Take care of no-name city Comes the end and it won't be pretty Here it is I mean here it is Here it is I mean here it is Here it is I mean here It is oh. Physically, it's the greed that destroys it because they're, yeah. they're digging these tunnels That's true. to get more gold yes. and the tunnels make the city yes. collapse. Yeah. And while we're at it, let's talk about that big set piece finale where mm -hmm. the, the town falls apart. Uh, how did it land for you? It was impressive to see. Yeah. Like, I mean, because the buildings are actually sinking into yeah. the ground on location. This is not done on a soundstage. And we'll get into that a little later. Mm-hmm. Uh, how it was done and the problems but it's a bit noisy and it goes on too it goes long on a long me. time and it's yeah and it, i don't really know what the implications for the characters are it's more of just a way to force them to leave yeah yeah it's, it's, it's really impressive and yeah. it's what needs to happen for the scale of this movie mm -hmm. is the entire town needs yes. to fall apart <laughs> that we've seen them build up so long right but that is one part that i would have changed a little bit okay uh having covered the plot pretty extensively now let's move on to the music and the songs oh and boy. that aspect of it <laughs> there's no question that this background of the gold rush always seemed to me the most natural environment for musical expression you couldn't express the gold country i don't think in any way but music and lyrics because it's too it's too exuberant and therefore this kind of robust carrying on and you can't just do that in words you just have to have music for it Alan J. Lerner is capturing the genuine flavor of Americana in these mountains with his action, words, and music. I wanted to argue for it that possibly it could appeal to non-fans of musicals. Mm -hmm. Because it's not the kind of thing where there's just like suddenly a dance break. And... Right. <laughs> that might be part of the problem of the movie in that mm. the two leads are non-singers. Yeah. And so... Three leads. Three leads, yes. Three leads are non-singers. So maybe that 
causes uh, people who are fans of the musical not to be so interested, and people who love just straight westerns and not musical fans maybe just don't want to see it because it's a musical. Yeah, you know? yeah, it, it's caught in the middle for yeah. sure. Yeah, I like it. I'm a fan of musicals, right. but I like that it is more character voices and actual like western actors portraying these rustic characters. Right. Um, I, I agree with you. I think it actually works for Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood that they're not professional polished singers like because they are westerners and it just sort of fits with the character that they wouldn't sing exceptionally well and you have to hand it to them for like giving it a shot yeah they they period. yeah i mean like i think marvin demanded he, he refused to be dubbed yeah. by another he yeah. would not do it without singing his own uh, songs lee marvin does sing in the film well he sings like lee marvin talks he has a, a basso profundo speaking voice and he has a kind of a growly singing voice but he's very very musical they do stand in contrast to professional singers like Harv Presnell, mm-hmm. who's in the film, as mm-hmm. well as just the background choruses. Yeah. But, like, I wouldn't really want to see Harv Presnell as one of the leads. He'd be too not wild westy <laughs> Too polished. Too, yeah, he'd too, be too yeah, polished. Yeah. You want a gravelly... Right. Yeah. You don't want a Broadway actor mm. in this role. You want a Westerner. Yeah. The, and, and Clint and Lee Marvin, uh, you know, they're Westerners. They they have a, embody the cowboy character well, so. And this has been my argument, as you well know, Clarence, <laughs> that modern musicals, yes. I feel like, don't have these character singers anymore, mm-hmm. as I call them. I'm sure real people have a, have a name for that <laughs> this kind of singer. But, like, you don't get, like, Elaine Stritches and Robert Preston's anymore, Rex Harrison's anymore. Right, right. Who didn't care that they weren't professional singers. They gave it all to the part and embodied the character and became iconic performances right. in in musical history. You just don't get like a Lee Marvin song in musicals anymore. Right, and and Lee Marvin began his career as a character actor. So yeah. I mean that fits exactly. Um, yeah, I guess like most Broadway musicals nowadays sort of a, a bland generic quality to yes. them or something you know it's sometimes difficult to tell singers apart yeah it could be any random baritone or something yeah you don't have stubby K up there singing. <laughs> we say that they're not all professional singers but Clint does have a bit of a history he does have a musical background I wonder if it's some kind of like wish fulfillment for him to be in a musical I bet it is. I mean, he's music is such a part of his life. You know, he's always been a jazz aficionado. Yeah. He's composed music to his films uh, that he directed later on. He cut an album. He cut in an his album. Raw yes. <laughs> Although he claims it was not his idea. <laughs> but he... I have a hard time believing that. I <laughs> know it's... the producers are persuasive, but. Yeah, he cut an album. I think in 1960, probably like the second or third year of Rawhide. I think it's. Clint Eastwood's or Rawhide's Clint Eastwood sings cowboy favorites or something Mm -hmm. and and it's not a terrible album I don't think (laughs) deep within my heart lies a melody a song of old satin tone where in dreams I live with a memory beneath the stars alone it was there. He sounds better on the album than I think he does in certain parts of the movie. Like the next year, he did uh, he sang a cover version of the theme song to the film he made, mm-hmm. Ke- Kelly's Heroes. 
And then he would play a country singer in Honky Tonk Man, uh, like in 1982. So he's clearly not averse to uh, getting behind the microphone. Yeah, in this film, I think it's clear that he has a musical ear. But there's something about it. It's it's almost hard to talk about it. There's something about it that he's not confident or yeah. it's not full-throated. Or... Well, I read that he uh, was very nervous when he had to go in front of Nelson Riddle, who did the orchestrations yeah. for this, and, and had to sing in front of him, and that may be uh, part yeah. of it. N- Nelson Riddle, who's <laughs> famous collaborator with Frank Sinatra. Right, right. Many of the old standards, uh, one of the most famous arrangers in American musical history. Right, yeah. Like when I talk to the trees, like I think mm-hmm. there are parts of it I was like, oh, this is not bad. Yeah. And then he hits a part. I'm like, it's, it gets rough. Mm-hmm. So It's like he can't reach the big notes. Yeah, yeah. Like in a, a more accomplished singer would really go to right, 11 right, on those. Right. And he just stays at four. Right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> might be a little generous. <laughs> I talk to the tree. But they don't listen to me I talk to the stars But they never hear me The breeze hasn't time To stop and hear what I say I talk to them all Suddenly my words reach someone else's ear At someone else's heartstrings too I tell you my dreams And while you're listening to me I suddenly see them come true. He talks to the Sounds like some kind of nut. (laughs) Some ding man going around talking to the trees. (laughs) Hi there, tree. Just dropped by to talk to you for a minute, Jill. I'm shy. I'm talking to the breeze, too. Jean Seberg, likewise, studied for months to perfect her one solo in the movie, but when she got to the studio, was too nervous, mm-hmm. and they ended up dubbing her. She was uh, dubbed by Anita Gordon, and there are two conflicting stories I, I found about how they got a hold of her. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that uh, the producer, Lerner, had chosen her, um, that she had faded away from, as the studio system and musicals had faded away. And he kept trying to contact her and contact her, and he'd almost given up until he contacted the Screen Actors Guild asking for her and uh, asked the phone operator for Anita Gordon, and the operator replied, yeah, that's me. (laughs) What do you want? (laughs) That sounds like one of those Hollywood stories that's too good to be true. The other story is that the other composer they brought in for the film after more songs needed to be written specifically for the film Andre Previn, mm-hmm. that he found Gordon watching an old movie on TV and was impressed with the voice dubbing for Gene Crane. Uh, and he called 20th Century Fox and they told him it was Anita. And they only had an address for her, not a number. And he sent a telegram to the address and she was invited to Paramount the next day. Hmm. 
That seems a little bit more realistic. I feel like I believe that a little yeah. more. I don't know that Lerner would go to such lengths to find this one specific person. When... Maybe his assistant. Did. Yeah. But... <laughs> but you think he'd give up shortly and right. just hire somebody else. There, It's not like there's a, a, a shortage of singers yeah. in Hollywood. But in any case, I think they all agree that her voice best matched Jean's speaking voice. And I, I think it does. I, yeah, it does. It doesn't... I wouldn't know. It, it, it's not jarring to hear that no. singing voice. Send back the world, there's too much night for me. The sky is much too high to shelter me when darkness falls. For cabin walls would be just right for me. I need a threshold I can cross where I can sit and gather moss forevermore. A million miles away behind the door. Roll up the plains, there's too much view for me. There's so much space between the waiting heart and whispered word. It's never heard. One room will do for me Where every evening I can stare At someone smiling from his chair Across the floor A million miles away Behind the door and, But it is odd that she only has one song in the entire film and uh, that is a song composed specifically for the film, not yeah. from the play. Yeah. It, it just seems normal that your one of your leads would have at least two numbers. Yeah. But I do like that song. However, most of the songs composed for the film by Previn, mm -hmm. um, I would say, are my least favorite. Yeah. My theory behind that is that although Previn is a accomplished arranger, musician, um, etc., he doesn't have a long history with mm -hmm. musicals specifically. And to me, a lot of songs are very disjointed, kind of all over the place, change tone rapidly. Yeah, yeah particularly the song um, where they're digging the tunnel. Uh, the best things <laughs> in life are dirty. The earth is pure muck. Muck's a good thing. Losing with mud, mud is just fine. It's drowning in bog, bog is good luck. And crawling with crud, crud's a good sign. The poor they got hope, the rich can buy soap. Rainbows ain't got a bottom, and I ain't got a spot. You feet down, there's a lot of Just waiting to buy Tobacco and rye From now till I die The best things in life are dirty And nothing in life is Better to old than daddy gold The best things in life are Filthy, dirty humps of gold Gold, gold that that song 
feels like three different songs mashed together. Mm-hmm. It's very weird. It's like it seems to well, be going one way and then it goes another. And I think you particularly did not like Gold Fever. I would give the world to see how I used to be when I had no axe to grind except for chopping wood. Day was day and night was night, wrong was never right. Didn't matter where I went as much as where I stood. I had dreams average size. There were stars in the skies, not my eyes. Then I got gold. No romp and rollin' girl and fellow stop can cure the gold fever. Nothing can help you but the yellow stuff. What can stop that itching ain't around the kitchen? Gold, gold, look am I? Susanna, go ahead and cry. Yeah, Gold Fever, uh, it felt, the tone of that felt completely wrong for the way the scene was shot. Uh, Clint's, like, in a a low point, like, he's disgusted with himself and ashamed of how he's turned out, and, but the song is sort of upbeat in a way. Uh, I don't know, it's, it doesn't, it didn't seem to work. It is very odd, and, I mean, I think this even speaks to the fact that it's maybe not just us, and that in the second run theaters at the time of its release three of these songs were cut elisa the clint eastwood song uh the first thing you know and gold fever Mm. which we mentioned which left lee and clint with only one solo yeah that's that's (laughs) that's pretty bad for a musical uh but you know i don't disagree with those yeah no it's true yeah Yeah. you don't need them no um so many of the songs i feel like are unnecessary that don't accomplish anything related to the plot and that's really what a musical song needs to accomplish it needs to forward progress right needs to say something about the characters (laughs) um it's like they're in there just because oh it's a musical we need some songs yeah the first two songs that are sung in the in the movie after the the opening song elisa and Mm -hmm. the first thing you know which are unfortunately also the first two solos by our leads right those two and then the next song hand me down that can of beans which features a cameo by the nitty-gritty dirt band right much of a point no (laughs) they don't i hate to say it i guess elisa shows that there's a longing from clint's character for a woman right fantasy woman we're at first to believe that it's his love that he left back home right um but then we find out that she doesn't exist i guess you could say that when he does confess to lee marvin later that he didn't have a girl back home it's sort of a bonding moment between them like they're coming clean to each other but that's a lot for just that that one scene 
still see Elisa. She keeps on returning as breathless and young as ever. I still hear Elisa and still feel a yearning to hold her against me again. heart was made of holidays Her smile was made of dawn Her laughter was an April song That echoes on and on Since I saw Lisa The shadows are falling And winter is calling above But I still see Elisa And then, in my opinion, the worst song is the best thing in life for Dirty, the one that you said. The well, tunnel. They're, they're digging the tunnel. The tunnel song, yeah. Which reminds me of a Donkey Kong song yeah. that maybe <laughs> from Donkey Kong Country that I'm sure no one else will get, but I'm going to throw it in. You okay. guys listen to the comparison because I think it's there. And that one also includes both Lee and Clint singing. A duet with them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah um, maybe not the best idea. I don't think it accomplishes anything. The accompanying action is just a lot of slapstick. And yeah. it, as enjoyable as, as it is, that can always be cut. You know, you're not learning anything in those no, moments. No, we've, we've seen them digging this tunnel before. It wasn't necessary to have this extended scene yeah. uh, with the song. The song itself is very repetitive. Yeah. And again, quick, just all over the place. A quick montage of them digging would have been plenty. Having knocked down all those songs, <laughs> yes, there are songs that I'm a fan of. I, I like the opening song, and then I think there are three that are iconic for the when you say paint your wagon that mm-hmm. people think of. They call the wind Mariah. Mm-hmm. I talk to the trees. Mm-hmm. Clint's song and Wandering Star. Yeah. Lee's song. Yeah. All of which became mainstream hits. Um, were covered extensively. Became standards. Mariah was apparently popular among the troops in Korea and would lend the name to Mariah Carey. We would like to do a ballad, my brother and myself, combining our voices as once, once we did long ago. And the we old sing day. a ballad entitled Mariah. What? Mariah. 
Machaya is an Israeli folk no, song no, no, describing you're wrong, you're incredible wrong. Wait a minute. Mar it's not Machaya, it's Mariah. It's Machaya. No, no, no. It's, it's Mach... No, no, excuse me. It's Mariah. It's not Machaya. You just about said Machaya. Yeah, but I wouldn't think. It's Mariah and it's not Israeli folk you song. You don't... It's not an Israeli folk song. They call the wind Mariah. 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 <laughs> Way out here they've got a name. Fire is Joe, and they call the wind Mariah. I uploads the stars around it and sets the clouds to flying. Mariah makes the mountains sound like folks was up there dying. Wandering Star was a number one single in the UK that kept Let It Be by The Beatles at number two. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Lee Marvin over The Beatles. Yeah. Wow. That also shows you kind of what the era was like. Yeah. When those are the competing. That's that's uh, that's a weird. On the pop charts. Yes. <laughs> those are two very different uh, songs. Yeah. But let's talk more about Wandering Star. Yes. I think I really like that song. Me too. Um, I think that whole scene is great. Lee kind of sings it under his breath. Uh, kind of mumbles the song. He's at a low point in the film. He's experiencing one of his spells of melancholy, as he says. He's been forced to leave the cabin because Elizabeth doesn't want these religious people who are staying with him to know that she has two husbands. And so he's packed his gear and is headed into town. And it's a very moody moment. The, the way it's shot is great. It's very uh, foggy. It's overcast. Uh, mm -hmm. The streets are muddy. And he's just kind of trudging along and singing this song to himself. And it's I think it's really well done. It's really simply staged, and I yeah. think that leaves room for just his voice and the lyrics to speak themselves. Mm -hmm. It's like one of the most poetic songs, I think. I also love the beginning of it, that it kind of teases us with this intro. Right. It starts off with the instrumental as Lee is walking down the street, and there's so many times during the instrumental when you think the song is going to kick in, when the lyrics are going to kick in, and it doesn't. And right. I think that just leaves us in his emotional state until we're ready for him to to start break in. warbling yes
Wheels are made for rolling, mules are made to pack. I've never seen a sight that didn't look better looking back. Your prisoner and the plains can bake you dry. Snow can burn your eyes, but only people make you cry. Home is made for coming from, for dreams of going to, which with any luck will never come true. and said that the song was a hit in Australia where someone described it as the first 33 and a third recorded at 45. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And I think the quote from Gene Seberg is that it's like gurgling down a drain pipe. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Something like that, yeah. Not wrong. <laughs> but not bad either. But, I mean, you will find either of us listening to it in our car yeah, at any yeah. given moment. So. I do have it on my phone. Yeah, so. me too. Um, what did you think of There's a Coach Coming In, that song? Did you Do you like that one, or where do you stand on that Yeah, one? I think that's another one that, first of all, I love the men singing in it, even if it is sort of a counterpoint to mm-hmm. the less-than-good singing from our lead. I think it develops the action really well right away. It's a, it's a quick-paced song, mm-hmm. and gets you into it It feels like you're sort of on the something's about to happen yeah Yeah. and that's from the original musical correct yes yeah yeah. There's a coach coming in, if you listen you can hear It's a clip-clopping over the hill And the sound that you hear is as good to your ear As the call of the wild river will There's a coach coming in, you can feel it getting near All at once and it bursts into view And it looks to your eye like a belt from the sky Like a coach full of dreams come true I'd say probably about like half the songs are invented for the movie And about half the songs from the play are not used There are... A couple moments that I thought I heard songs from the play, mm-hmm. little instrumental motifs mm-hmm. in the movie. So that's kind of neat if you're a fan of. If you know those songs, yeah. yeah. But Previn uh, struck out with you, I guess, on this. He didn't. He didn't have anything. Sorry. <laughs> Andrew preview for yeah. uh, fans of Morecambe and Wise. <laughs> well, let's move on to uh, the look of the film. Okay. I, I think we talked about. Uh, to me, it, there's so many things that you can't see on stage yeah that i mean first of all just like horses how are you gonna do that <laughs> seriously but then these these expansive landscapes was filmed right. in oregon Fil- yeah near like 50 miles from baker city yeah. oregon um which really wouldn't be that far from where pale rider was shot honestly i mean 
That's true. In Eastern Oregon and then Idaho. And Idaho. That's true. That's true. High in the mountains of Oregon, Lee Marvin, Gene Seberg, Clint Eastwood, and over a thousand people will help bring Lerner's dream to roaring life. The lusty, bawdy gold rush days in the West. I mean, you have hundreds of extras, it looks like, mm -hmm. uh, horses, wagons. They built an entire town in the middle of this yeah. remote Oregon uh, valley. The reason that we went to a lower mountain was because this happened to be the only spot in America that looked like the High Sierras, which is across the home base of the gold rush, where there was a mountain stream and which was still virgin territory. For Alan J. Lerner, his location also has to fill another requirement. It is to be the site of two cities, one of tents, another of 90 buildings. He again looks to the imagination of production designer John Truscott and the experience of director Josh Logan, for together the three had created Camelot. It's, I mean, it's well done. They um, built two entire towns, one for before oh, yes. when it was less prosperous and one for after. Right, not to mention whatever they had to set up for the cast and crew who yes. had to stay there. Yeah, the photography is by William Fraker. Uh, I think it's really, look, the movie looks good. I the, think there's a, not, a lot of nice composition and yeah. lighting, like... I, I think I remarked during the movie that this is really well lit for a, like a mining camp. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. Where do they find this kind of light? <laughs> but the costuming is really well done. It doesn't. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel stylized in any way, but it doesn't I, I feel yeah. generic Hollywood either. I think they made like all the cost a lot of the costumes from scratch. Oh and yeah. I think yeah. There's like a lot of a lot of nice like there's fog and mm -hmm. and the mud in the streets and it's just it has. And a I very... think they manufactured the mud as well. Yeah. I think they had to create rain when there was right. rain and. They had to create like several seasons during yeah. the spring or summer whenever they right. shot. Yeah. Because part of the plot is that they have to make a decision about whether they're staying or leaving before winter comes. Right, right. Because they're not gonna the, the gold's not gonna last them that long. Right. I have to say I'm a fan of Lee's powerful facial hair. <laughs> yes, he looks he has a great look in this. Yeah. Some people say that it's a, a follow up to his Cat Baloo character. Right. Who I think is not that great looking. Yeah. He's got weird hair in that movie. But this one That's no on he point. looks yeah. Yeah. Cat Baloo like looks like a Hollywood production. It feels almost like a TV Western yeah. in its look to me. For as much as they had to manufacture in this movie and paint your wagon, it doesn't look it, whereas in Cat Baloo, yeah. it feels like it's on the set. Yeah. No, yeah. Lee's great. He's got that top hat and yeah. uh, I don't know. Yeah, what do you think of that? I like his top hat. Okay. It, it works. Yeah. yeah. It was a little different for me, but yeah, yeah I did. I think Harper Snell's hat makes him look like um, the Something Wicked This Way Comes yeah. character. <laughs> it's a big hat. It's, yeah. <laughs> And his hair is all dyed. Yeah, he's and... got those super jet black hair yeah. and beard. It's it's kind of odd. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of think that Clint's hair looks like very 70s. You think so? Yeah. Mm. That That's the one thing I think. It's too... His does not look period to mm. me. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's Clint hair. <laughs> Which is beautiful. Gorgeous locks. <laughs> but... And of course, behind all this is the director, Joshua Logan. Yes. Do you want to talk about him? Sure. Oh. Prior to this, he had come off of making Camelot, another big musical. He's really known more for the stage. The stage, yes. And for adaptations of his stage works. He directed and co-wrote South Pacific and right. won the Tony and Pulitzer for it and would direct the film right. of it. He did uh, uncredited directing on Mr. Roberts, which I believe mm -hmm. he directed on the stage. Yeah, he was. He took over for John Ford for that. Right. He was an early roommate of...
of Henry Fonda's. Mm, um, I didn't know that. He would also direct Jane Fonda along with Anthony Perkins right. in the film version of Tall Story. Right. Felicity's not a fan of that. Um, <laughs> he did Bus Stop, the Marilyn Monroe picture. Oh, sorry, go oh, ahead. I was going to say for Tall Story, Ray Walston is also in Oh, that. true. Yeah. And that was apparently a very troubled production because supposedly both Jane and Josh Logan were in love with Perkins. Oh. <laughs> and already Josh didn't get along with Jane, who was already overwhelmed playing like the kind of ingenue character. Right, this right. Was, one of was that her, her first film? I think it was or... her first film, yeah. yeah. Um, and being in the public eye. Right. But yes, as you say, he directed uh, Marilyn Monroe and Bus Stop. Bus Stop, Sayonara with Marlon Brando. Yes, um... which he was nominated for an Oscar, as well as Fanny. And the film version of Picnic, mm -hmm. he was also nominated for, which he also directed on stage. Right. Yeah. So yeah, Camelot, he had just made prior to this. Mm -hmm. So I guess he loves casting spaghetti Western actors in his movies. <laughs> so you have Franco Nero in that and now Clint. Yeah. For this movie, he originally wanted, uh, I read, Mickey Rooney, James Cagney, and Leslie Ann Warren for the yes, leads. Yes. Yeah. That seems a bit odd. Yeah. They seem a little bit old. And very different than what we ended up with. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least they all have musical experience. True. But he became, like, fast friends with Lee Marvin, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lee became friends with Josh Logan's kids, and there were rumors that they didn't get along on set, perhaps because of Lee's drinking. But he, he came out in public, Joshua Logan came out in public and said, maybe we had our tiffs, but he's a fine man. Like, he defended him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was some early trouble, uh, which we'll get into in a bit. Probably weren't, you know, anything to do with personalities. It was just the, the delays in the production. Yeah, there was a lot going on. Yeah. I have a quote from Logan about his approach to directing this movie. Mm -hmm. My approach is to uh, come to Oregon and put Lee Marvin between me and Oregon and turn the camera and get out of the way. <laughs> that seems like what he did. Yeah. 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 I mean, do you want to comment on his style, his directing style? It doesn't seem to really lend itself to the Western. There's nothing, I don't think, remarkable about it necessarily it's not you know you're not getting a john ford or a sergio leone or, or what have you but because the locations are so great it's comes across as beautiful you yeah. know i mean you're in these mountains and and you've got the mud and the trees and you know it's great it's hard to make them ugly yeah, yeah. you can you can just set the camera up and it's you're gonna be okay yeah. i think they wanted to shoot on or he wanted to shoot on location because of how it helped Sound of Music and how successful mm, that yes. was. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the writer, Patty Chayefsky, yes. um, who did the screenplay for this. Kind um, of an unusual choice yeah. for a musical, yeah. It surprised me mm. when I first saw that his name was attached. He had previously collaborated with Logan on the play Middle of the Night in mm. 1956, mm -hmm. so there's a little bit of a connection there. And just a little background on Chayefsky is uh, he's known as kind of the father of kitchen sink realism on American TV. Right, that a lot movie. of li live television and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and like kind of the style of like slice of life. Right. Yeah, slice of life right. naturalism. He won Oscars for uh, Marty, The Hospital, and Network. Right, And Network, yeah. I think, is perhaps his greatest Yes, yes, which would come like seven years yes, after this, but yeah. yeah. Marty was probably his biggest success, yes. what he's most known for prior to this. Apparently, the first draft that he wrote, he ended up only getting credited as adapting the play mm -hmm. and not screenplay credit. Apparently, the early draft was a much darker, somber film, and that's sort of what got Eastwood interested in in the film. And Lerner rewrote it and made it you know, much more comedic and, and, and less, less dark. And Eastwood almost pulled out of the film, mm -hmm. but, but they, they talked him into it, yeah. Yeah, I think the the justification for hiring him, Chayefsky, to begin with, is that he is known for the sort of suffering male character, 
And it is an interesting angle. And I think they wanted him to modernize the 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 film yeah, or yeah. The, the play. Yeah, he knows about the social issues that right, are going right. on and can add that touch. But yeah, I guess he didn't end up getting screenplay credit because Lerner rewrote so much mm-hmm. of what he of his original draft. I don't know. Like I'm a I'm a fan of throwing in sort of odd parties together and seeing yeah. what happens. Yeah. And you get a little bit of that here, but maybe it's sometimes overshadowed by the the jokes and the right. Yeah, I would love to see what the what his early script was, the one that Eastwood responded to initially, because he thought it would break new ground for the musical. Real quick, let's talk about just how it came to fruition as a movie, because as we said, it debuted on Broadway in 1951. Mm-hmm. Um, music and lyrics by Lerner and Lowe, who were known for My Fair Lady, Camelot, Brigadoon. It was first attempted as a film in 1957 by Louis B. Mayer, but was abandoned when he died. Um, At that time, Gary Cooper was originally supposed Hmm. to be Ben. Hmm. When this version of the film was being produced, it was coming off the heels of the Sound of Music success Mm -hmm. in 1965. But it's interesting its place in musical history because it is sort of known as the the deaf era of the musical. You do have Sound of Music in, in 65, but there's not a lot happening in 66. In 67, you get some notable disasters like Camelot and Dr. Doolittle. Yeah. But then you have Oliver, which was a big hit in 68. And Funny Girl, I believe. Funny Girl was also that year. I think this is a shows what this era was like in that Oliver was a landmark film because it was the first and only G-rated movie to win Best Picture. Wow. While the following year, Midnight Midnight Cowboy Cowboy was the only (laughs) X-rated film to win Best Picture. To oscillate between those two... Shows what a like a volatile culture it was. It was a, it was a confused era. There was yeah. a lot of changes going on in Hollywood as to what and it, and basically the seventies would become the era of the director. You know until yeah. like the late seventies, um, and moving away from big studio productions like this. Mm-hmm. As as we've alluded to, there were a lot of changes between the movie and the play. Really, all that they share is the title and. The, the gold rush gold theme. rush yeah. setting. It's, it's basically a completely different script. Originally, Partner was a Mexican character named Julio, who on stage gets involved with Rumson's daughter in an interracial re- relationship, which was thought to be too dated by the time the film was uh, being produced, and so they changed it to the threesome <laughs> uh, <laughs> plot. Uh, the, the plot of Rumson buying the Elizabeth character was a subplot. The Elizabeth character was a very minor mm. character. Rumson dies at the end of the play, mm. and he is alive at this mo- in the movie. And so much of these changes to the script made it difficult to fit the original score. So, as we said, they hired Previn, wrote new songs, right. and trashed some of the others. Wasn't Bing Crosby at one point considered? I heard that, yeah. yeah. I don't know when I don't know that. when, yeah. <laughs> but that would also be a change. I can see him playing Rumson, I guess, um, and at least he can sing, so. He's not a cowboy. Yeah. True, that's true. It would have been a different movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lee Marvin plays what was called a wilderness man. Certainly, whatever there is in Lee Marvin that is of the wilderness man seems that the sum total of him because I just couldn't conceive of anybody playing it but Lee. He just walked into it fully blown, fully grown. And the partner character, I guess, is pretty much completely invented yes. for this film. Yeah. Partner, we don't learn his name until the very end so it's sort of like clint's playing a man with no name mm-hmm. again i don't know if that was like intentional or not but and what's his name sylvester it's like sylvester newell, newell or something yeah, one, one l, l. <laughs> but reportedly the film had a 20 million dollar budget mm-hmm. and would be the sixth highest grossing film in the history of paramount at the time and i think the sixth highest grossing film of that year it would make 31 million dollars but 
that would not be enough to right. offset the cost right. of the, both the production and the marketing. Involved. And the, the 20 million, I believe, was the final budget, not the original budget. Right, right, it right. went well over budget. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about where that budget came from. <laughs> Yeah, they they decided to shoot on location. The production designer John Truscott, this he was 30 years old at the time. His only previous work was doing the production design and costume design on Camelot, also directed by Josh Logan as we mentioned. He won Oscars for both of those categories. So he's this 30-year-old wonderkin, you mm-hmm. know. And they decided to shoot in Oregon and they found this location that was 50 miles from the nearest town. And I read that it was kind of Truscott leaning on uh logan to, yes. to shoot on location yes yeah he but it was it was his pushing <laughs> yes and so they had to haul everything through these roads i mean the, the roads had to be redone you know there were no people didn't go out yeah. you know the roads were very poor quality so they had to build the roads and they had to bring all this equipment from hollywood to build and they had to build this entire town twice um, twice 80 different construction vehicles have hauled over a half million feet of lumber up the trail to the base. Other vans brought in thousands of fur logs for corrals, hundreds of barrels of nails and rope. Carpenters from nearby towns help out crews from the studio. It will take them over two months to get no-name city ready for the cameras. The cast and crew during filming, there, were heli- there was a helicopter provided to ferry them back and forth to the town, which cost... $80,000 a day. Yeah, no one knew... Because the, the town was 50 miles away yeah. on a dangerous road. So people would just routinely take these helicopter trips and, and not knowing the, the cost and what it was, co- you know, the overruns on the budget. Yeah. the Actually building the sets took more than seven months, which is pretty outrageous for a, a Hollywood production. While the, the main cast were staying in this 50 mile away town and being flown in the rest of the cast and crew slept in tents on location and we're always running out of supplies (laughs) sounds like a nightmare the location was near a hippie camp uh who they were able to hire as cheap extras right but they stole supplies and refused (laughs) to wear period wardrobe and cut their hair and then they also i read organized a kind of union and demanded higher wages and food which logan ended up giving into (laughs) damn hippies yeah and then they fell behind shooting like almost right away. And Lerner wanted to fire Logan. Eastwood was against it. Lee Marvin suggested he bring in Richard Brooks, who Marvin had just worked with on The Professionals a couple of years earlier. Because Marvin knew he needed a strong director to rein him in uh, because of his drunken behavior. Yeah. Supposedly he was drinking basically every day and he right. refused to work if his prop liquor was not real liquor, right. which is, of course, not the custom on <laughs> no. sets. So you usually have like tea or something filling in right. for, for whiskey. Something non- non-alcoholic yeah. subbing for the booze. And that caused delays because Marvin was, you know, drunk. So Clint Clint Eastwood was not in favor of firing Josh Logan, despite he had had uh, issues with him from the get-go. When he first showed up on the Paramount lot for rehearsals, they wouldn't let him into the stage because they thought he, they didn't believe he was part of the production. Mm. <laughs> so he left and he said uh, if anyone's asked he told the guard when he left if anyone's looking for clint you can tell him i'll be at the universal lot where they recognize me so it wasn't a good start and then when they were rehearsing he thought logan didn't know how to stage a scene very well so he had troubles with him even though he would back him on set anyways Lerner called richard brooks who refused to take the job he wouldn't he didn't want a director to be fired and he would uh take over and then later don siegel uh, who had directed Clint in Coogan's Bluff the year before, and also had directed Lee Marvin in The Killers, he came to visit. And Lee Marvin was like, oh, yeah, let's get Don Siegel to do it. And he also declined. And eventually Lerner uh, came to an agreement with Logan and, and kept him on, although he did kind of 
overrule him on a yeah, lot of things. Yeah, he interfered with a lot of things. Lerner had his doctor on set so he could be well supplied with amphetamines at oh, the time. Wow. <laughs> Meanwhile, Logan was dealing with his undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Mm. On the first day of shooting, they couldn't find Logan. They finally found him asleep on a table in the saloon set <laughs> where they weren't shooting. <laughs> Sounds like he was getting into Ben Runson, Ben yeah, Runson's yeah, character. Yeah. I mean, we, we can say that about uh, Lee's drinking, that maybe it helps w- with the character, a little you, bit of method preparation. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you see, it's not like it's a detriment to his performance no. in any way. <laughs> He's not supposed to be like a sober pilot no. or something. <laughs> in the location, you know, for the climax of the film, the town has to collapse into sinkholes. Mm-hmm. So they built they had to build, you know, the set in order to sink into the ground there on location. And so when they chose the location, which was, you know, extremely far away, what they didn't realize was that uh, the soil there was too marshy for what they wanted to do. And they had to install this complicated system of hydraulic devices to lower the buildings. And it was it was a disaster. They had to shore up all the, the ground underneath to keep the sets up in the first place. And they had horses and people going over everything. And Truscott was quoted as saying, there was a water table directly under the ground. There was a labyrinth of underground rivers. This meant we had to fill the entire area with tons of earth so we could begin to work with ground solid enough for the building to sink into, as well as house a maze of eight foot high underground tunnels, which in the story trigger the demise of the city. The safety problems were gigantic. Several thousand feet of tunnels had to be built and shored up with logs and timber. The fissures had to be built up so as to collapse on signal, yet they had to be solid enough to support the city while we were filming in and around it. So all this caused delay after delay, like trying to build all this stuff and keep it... Yeah, I think it was supposed to be a two-month shoot, and it became five months. Yeah, and there was so there was a lot of downtime on set, and Clint Eastwood and Gene Seberg allegedly had an affair during this. Mm -hmm. Apparently, she really fell hard for him, and he he later claimed he was kind of nuts about her, I think he said. I think she thought they were going to get married. Yeah. Yeah. And but once they got back to Hollywood, he kind of disappeared. He was married at the time, and I think his first son had just been recently born. So, and I think while they were having the affair on set, he was also having an affair with an extra, uh, and Gene didn't know about that relationship. Mm. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyways, after this whole disaster, Truscott never was sort of blacklisted and never worked as a production designer again. So two oscars right out of the gate and then nothing so that's unfortunate i mean i think he was very talented the sets are great the costumes are great and Um, logan never worked again either in film that's true that's true that was his that was his last film film. as a director yeah um i think yeah logan and truscott sort of took the blame for the problems with the film. which i mean there wasn't a lot of big hollywood musicals after that and that's kind of in his in Logan's wheelhouse so maybe he wouldn't have had that much work to begin with just wanted to add a couple other things under the budget that made it so outrageous they imported pine trees from hollywood to supplement the oregon forest (laughs) because it wasn't oregon wasn't good enough yeah Yeah. supposedly a team of horses that was supposed to be used for one scene uh which would be a week's work were kept on for the whole shoot wow (laughs) truscott hired specialists to weave lace handkerchiefs for extras who would hardly be seen. Wow. This feels like uh, Heaven's Gate, yeah. the first version. or It's you a know. singing Heaven's Gate. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I, I think maybe a, a good release for Logan was at the end of the shoot, he just dynamited the set. <laughs> I can't imagine how good that would be. That must have been very him. cathartic, yes. So you did talk about how uh, Lerner wanted to fire uh, Logan, mm-hmm. and even though he didn't, he did ultimately take 
the cut away from him and right. Lerner recut it himself. Right. Which maybe if a director had cut it, it would have been a little tighter. Yeah, he might have had a different. I don't want to like place blame on people, but. <laughs> But I think Lerner had a heavy hand yeah. on this production, yeah. And then you were mentioning this is one of the last big Hollywood musicals. This is 1969. The kind of movies Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood had been making just prior to this, you could say, were the result of changing, you know, the audience's cha- uh, tastes changing. You know, the more cynical anti-hero type mm-hmm. movies and musicals just weren't, you know. Aren't in, made for that. Yeah, maybe. they weren't in yeah. tune with that. Lee Marvin at this point. This is like his high period. This is his high period. He yeah. had finally graduated to being a leading man he, in 65. He starred in Cat Ballou, won Oscar for Best Actor. Well, before that, he had The Killers, which is a big... That's right, yeah, which was originally a made-for-TV movie, mm. uh, then got theatrical release because it was deemed too violent for television. And, the, and then he follows that up with The Dirty Dozen, The Professionals, <laughs> Point Blank, Hell in the Pacific, big movies, big He-Man action movies, and, and all, you know, just a string of hits for him. Yeah. He was supposed to star in The Wild Bunch this year in 1969, but when Paramount offered him a million dollars, and a percentage of the profits for Paint Your Wagon, he backed out and, and went into this movie. And that was his first million dollar contract <clears throat> yeah. in his career. It's interesting to think, you compare The Wild Bunch as a Western in 1969 to, <laughs> to Paint Your Wagon. It's again another yeah. two sides of that coin. Yeah. yeah, But I think it would have been interesting to see uh, Marvin in uh, yeah. Wild Bunch. Now, although I love The Wild Bunch as is. And just after this, to continue his career, you have Monty Walsh in 70. Yeah, yeah William Franker, the DP on this, would make his directorial debut debut with Lee Marvin in that film which yeah. is a which is a good western I think and you have Emperor of the North mm-hmm. um, Prime Cut yeah Lee Marvin this was like right in the, the late 60s early 70s yeah the peak of his like he's leading man runs. yeah he's doing well <laughs> <laughs> and then Clint Eastwood at this point he had made uh, his three films with Sergio Leone, which made him the big star. After that, he had returned to America, and he had had three big hits right in a row prior to this film. Uh, Hang Em High, Coogan's Bluff, and Where Eagles Dare. Clint is excellent, too. We didn't realize that he has a real command of himself as an actor. But in this, he has an opportunity to really play scenes with the dialogue and not just pure action. He was offered $750,000 and a percentage of the profit for this movie. Yeah, that was his highest payday so far. And I do think the the star power of this movie contributed to how well it did do at the box yeah, office. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even if it didn't make up for the budget. Right. And I think Clint and Lee play well off of each other, as Clint is very reserved and, and kind of calm, and Lee Marvin is big and broad, mm-hmm. and they, they, they match together well. I would like to have seen them play something yeah. else. Yeah, you do want to see more. Yeah, but I think Lee Marvin's behavior... Coupled with all the production problems, it kind of changed Clint's perspective on how to do his career. Mm-hmm. And he he it already started his production company in Malpaso, but it made him really want to take control of his projects and keep them smaller, you know, more manageable budgets, and and not star in these big gigantic Hollywood movies that you know wasted thousands and millions of dollars. Yeah, he's known for being very economical about yes, his shoots. Yes. Not many takes. Right, not... and I think this kind of scared him off from working with major stars for quite a long time. Because yeah. if you look at his his filmography through the '70s and early '80s, there's not a lot of big co-stars with mm-hmm. him. You know, it is interesting to to see these two together with Lee supposed to be much older than yes. the the young sort of innocent uh, Clint Eastwood. Right. When they're what four years? Yeah, apart? I think four. 
four or five yeah. years apart, I something mean, of like course, that. Uh, Lee is kind of the, you're prematurely gray. Yeah, and he's yeah. got the big bushy so facial that, hair. That but, helps, yeah. And I like, too, that this is one of the rare times that you see Clint smiling in a movie. Yes. But it's kind of off-putting. <laughs> like, I don't want to see more. Yeah. No, I like it, but... I'd rather see him scowling. It's a little freaky. Yeah. <laughs> just given the rest of his... You just, you just don't see it. Yeah. yeah. You're not used to he it. He has teeth. <laughs> And then uh, Jean Seberg, of course, she at this point, I think she's sort of an unusual choice for this movie. Yeah. She didn't have like a major Hollywood career. She had been in a few sort of, you know, big movies, uh, Lilith with Warren Beatty, uh, A Fine Madness opposite Sean Connery. And then most of her credits at this point had been in France. Mm -hmm. Jean Seberg may seem a strange name to be up in the lower mountains, but actually she's an Iowa farm girl who uh, has become associated with the most sophisticated European film because she lived over there following Joan of Arc. But actually, as I say, she's a girl from the Midwest and is more at home and was more at home in the mountains here than probably she may have been even in Paris today. She uh, made her film debut in uh, St. Joan, directed by Otto Preminger in 1957. She was 19, playing Joan of Arc. She won the role after a highly publicized nationwide search for an unknown to play the part. Preminger, who's known for being a tyrant and awful to his actors, was awful to her and I think traumatized her. It's weird how often that happens. Yeah. <laughs> In Hollywood. I know. The movie got bad reviews. She got bad reviews. Preminger had her under contract, and they made one more film after that, uh, Bonjour Tristesse, which was filmed in France, where she met her first husband, who introduced her to Jean-Luc Godard, the uh, film critic turned director, who would have cast her in Breathless, of course, opposite Belmondo. And, you know, film history was mm -hmm. made. It was, you know, created the French New Wave, or started the French New Wave, and was, like, one of the most important films. It was, like, a new kind of film. A right. new kind of look for a female lead in a movie right broke all the rules of film technique and was was a was a big change mm -hmm. in the in the movie industry and would send shockwaves through hollywood and i think they were still trying to catch up by the late 60s mm -hmm. you know they still hadn't film it became much more modern and hollywood was behind the times i think at that point after that she mo worked in europe mainly uh had a few american films as i mentioned she had a very troubled personal life she was married three times had very difficult relationships by the late 60s she started she became involved in left-wing politics she was involved in the anti-war movement you know protesting the vietnam war uh, she started supporting uh, the black panther party um, which drew the attention of the FBI. The FBI began an operation to harass and intimidate her and try and uh, destroy her image in the public. Obviously, that did not help. And she <laughs> she had gave birth to a child around this point that died. She became depressed and turned to drugs and alcohol. Um, she attempted suicide. She was found in 1979 dead in the backseat of a car in Paris. It was ultimately ruled as a suicide, but a lot of people thought maybe she was killed for her politics. The FBI tapped her phones and tailed her, and Hoover, I think, took a personal interest in, in discrediting her and, and making her life miserable. Yeah, and I mean, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg yeah. in this story. I it's, mean, it is a very interesting story that we won't go into more deeply, but you should definitely look it up. Right. It, it's worth about. I'm a big fan of hers. I really like her mm -hmm. work. It's unfortunate she wasn't in a lot of better productions. I wonder how hard it would be for her to be in more parts. It sounds like she had a lot of neuroses. Yes, that... yes perhaps would make that difficult for her. Right. I think she was really unprepared for her stardom yeah. and, and what there was such a huge publicity machine behind St. Joan and what went into that. There was so much pressure on her. I think it was just, you know, it was a bad yeah. start. What do you think of her in this film? 
I like her. I think she's really good. I, I think she gave you a nice performance. What about you? I think it's a little bit reserved, but I think she still catches your eye. Like, I think it it's captivating. Yes, yeah. Briefly, I wanted to touch on um, one of the more minor characters mm-hmm. um, played by Harv Presnell. Yeah. Who, prior to this, was a burgeoning musical star... And in this, I think he does get a, a good showcase with his solo song, uh, They Call the Wind Mariah. Right. Away out here, they got a name for rain and wind and fire. The rain is Tess, the fire's Joe, and they call the wind Mariah. Mariah blows the stars around and sends the clouds a-flying. Mariah makes the mountains sound like folks were up there dying. Before I knew Mariah's name and heard her wail and whining, I had a girl and she had me and the sun was always shining. But then one day I left my girl, I left her far behind me, and now I'm lost, so golden lost, not even God can find me. But when you're lost and all alone, there ain't no word but lonely. And I'm a lost and lonely man without a star to guide me. Mariah, blow my love to me. I need my girl beside me. the best song in the, yes. in the film yeah. in competition with Wandering <laughs> Star but is otherwise not really given much in this he becomes a just a very background character right. doesn't really have much dialogue after that he the character serves a purpose in the film and that he's the 
He's like the saloon the, brothel owner. Yeah. yeah. It's unusual to have such a prominent song in a film and be such a minor character. Yeah. It feels like, it almost feels like his part was cut out in the editing. Before this, he made his big film debut in The Unsinkable Molly Brown opposite Debbie Reynolds mm-hmm. in 1964. Uh, that was a part that was written for him on the stage by Meredith Wilson, mm-hmm. um, composer of The Music Man, another one of my favorites, uh-huh. who discovered him singing in an opera at the Hollywood Bowl. So he has a oh. operatic beginning. Um, but really that movie, I think it's Debbie Reynolds old movie yeah molly what happened to us but it, it does sort of present him in this Western hero light, and he gets yeah. that vibe to him. I think he was supposed to be sort of in the mold of like a Howard Keel, who mm. was likewise made famous in like tough guy baritone roles, right? And shows like uh, Oklahoma, Andy Get Your Gun, Calamity Jane, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. You get the gist. Yes, I used to get the two of them mixed up. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, after Molly Brown, he was in the 1965 non-musical western, The Glory Guys, right. that was supposed to be maybe his shot at presenting just a dramatic uh, acting role. That movie is a fictionalized version of the Battle of Little Bighorn, uh, written by Sam Peckinpah. And then after that, he had difficulty getting film parts, especially as we talked about the musical was dying. Mm -hmm. And it was in this, and then that was kind of it for a while, until his career resurgence in his 60s, appearing in Fargo and uh, Saving Private Ryan. Right. And from then, he, he... was making a lot of movies. Yeah, he, uh, he and Clint reunite actually yeah. for uh, Flags of Our Fathers. He has a has a small role in that. Yeah, it's amazing. He was, I guess, on stage for most of the seventies, eighties, mm-hmm. and then he shows up in Fargo and is like amazing. Yeah. He's great in that. Yeah, and you almost don't recognize him. Yeah, it doesn't seem like yeah. the same guy in a way. Yeah. What kind of finders fee are you looking for? To me, this is a movie that holds up fifty years later. Hmm. Maybe other people disagree with me. I think we're still talking a lot about the social issues that are going on here. Those don't feel dated to me. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. Yes. I think it's unfortunate that it was really like just assassinated by the critics at the time. Yeah. I think because of the production delays and the cost overruns, I think they just had their the knives out ready to rip this thing apart. Yeah. They saw that story and they went with it. Yeah. Um, Which is a tradition with critics and Hollywood productions run amok. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it, it is also unfortunate that they had those production troubles. Yes, had, yes. Had that not happened, who knows what the story would have been. It's also a conflicted movie i think because of of where it lays in movie history that it is in that time between indie movies and anti-heroes and traditional movies and the dying musical right and the Um, whole director driven era that was happening right about then yeah and these stars that were a part of of this newer movement Mm -hmm. forced into a more traditional movie right it's a mix between genres and maybe they clash a little too much. Yeah. Maybe it's a little too much for people to handle. <laughs> if you can't understand lovely love songs with a thought so poetic and, and beautiful as that, then forget it. I yep. will not try to sing anything for you. Yep. Just sing what you want to sing. Understand? Yep. Curb your tongue, Nave. I think it shows something about this movie that if you look it up on Amazon, 77% of the reviews are five stars out of five. <laughs> and, guess... and the one star reviews are mostly just about the picture quality. Mm. It Which leads have... me to say, why no Blu-ray? <laughs> That's a good question. I want an answer. That's a good question. <laughs> it has uh, devout fans, I guess. Yeah. Very hardcore fans. It's it's not a bad movie. It's not the disaster that you think it is going into it, or that you hear. You know, <laughs> yeah. that you hear yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, think a lot of the songs are catchy. They get stuck yeah. in your head. Yeah. 
it would have benefited from i think a little editing a little, little pruning on the runtime would have been good the lead three leads are very good um they work well together their singing isn't always the greatest <laughs> but it works it's fine <laughs> If you're still with us, I know this is a long one. I hope that just shows at least my passion about this film and uh, Clarence's reluctant <laughs> uh, coming along with me for this one. Yeah, it's cheesy to say, but please rate and subscribe. <laughs> that really supports us. Tell yes. you know somebody about it, and you know every little listen helps. So I guess that wraps it up for this week. Uh, we'll be back with another uh, Western, maybe something a little more traditional. Goodbye from me, Felicity, him, Clarence, and the spirit of Tex Ritter. Adios. Adios.